0: Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. The book of Mark, chapter 15. Uh, thanks, Bob, for the announcements. Just want to add a, a couple of things about what's coming up. Just to be clear, that discipleship hour is 9 a.m. on, on Sunday, so uh, next Sunday, review of the budget. But the next Sunday, the following Sunday, January 14. Um, we're going to have a Q&A session with Colby Hopkins, who has been nominated to serve in the office of deacon here. So this is a good opportunity for you to get to know Colby better because you, that is members of the congregation, will be voting on whether you want Colby to serve as deacon at the annual meeting on January 22nd. So there's also information about Colby, I think, at the Welcome Center. So uh, if you don't know him, you need to take time to, to get to know him as best as you can uh, before the annual meeting. Okay. Uh, Mark 15. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. We do have paperback Bibles uh, underneath the chairs in front of you. And so we're going to be looking at verses 16 to 32 in Mark 15. When I was uh, growing up in uh, high school, junior high, high school, I, I remember that when I woke up in the morning, the first thing that I would always hear is uh, the radio on downstairs, and my mother would be there um, listening to the news as she was preparing breakfast for us, and so I would always hear WIBC radio, AM radio, Fred Heckman was the newscaster, and that's what I heard every morning when I woke up, and uh, there was one morning that I woke up, and I didn't hear the news. Instead, what I heard was Beatles songs. Songs by the Beatles playing. And I thought that was kind of uh, unusual, peculiar, wasn't sure why. And found out soon enough that the reason they were playing Beatles songs is because the night before, John Lennon had been shot dead by a guy named Mark David Chapman in New York City. Date was December eighth, 1980. So uh, a a date that many music fans remember. uh, People devastated by... Lenin's death, and it brings to mind uh, a, a lot of very famous deaths that have occurred over our history. Many of them are so noteworthy that we remember the dates, right? April 15, 1865, Abraham Lincoln assassinated. November 22, 1963, John F. Kennedy assassinated. April 14, 1968. Martin Luther King, assassinated. Most of you are too young to remember that happening, but for those of you who were old enough and were alive at that time, you might very well remember exactly where you were when you heard of these deaths, because they were so significant, so monumental, and they affected so many people. Well, today, we're going to be considering another very famous death, and we don't know the exact date that this occurred, uh, but it is uh, a death that is unlike any other. It is a death that was uh, unique, extraordinary, and meaningful in a way that no other death has been considered, and this is the death of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, who was executed, not assassinated, I don't think that's really accurate, but executed by crucifixion somewhere around 2,000 years ago. So most of the time when we hear about these deaths, we're just kind of devastated, we're, we're shocked, we're, we're horrified, we're sad, and, and it just seems like why is this senseless kind of thing happening? That there's something so different about Jesus' death that, that while these other deaths that I've talked about and the many other deaths that have occurred over history, you know, they devastate us and they kind of empty us of hope. Jesus' death was unique in the fact that It actually was a kind of victory, and and Jesus' death actually gives us new hope. It it shouldn't devastate us in the way that these other deaths have because in the death and resurrection of Jesus is the hope of salvation and the hope of a brand new world, and so we're going to be looking at this here today. I know that this might seem like kind of a downer a little bit here on New Year's, Uh, which is a time of mostly for many people celebration and and, uh, um, excited anticipation of a a new year. But we are returning now to the book of Mark, which is what we have been going through over the last year and a half or so. And so as we pick up where we left off in the book of Mark, um, we're here in chapter 15, and the passage before us is the crucifixion of Jesus. So that's what we're picking up, so if you're able to stand, please do so, and let me read our passage to you today, and, and we'll take a look at what God has to say to us through His Word, again, Mark 15, 16 through 32, <clears throat> the Word of God says this, And the soldiers led Him, that's Jesus, led Jesus away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. He saved others. He can't save Himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with Him also reviled Him." Holy Spirit, we are looking to You to give us insight, to open our eyes, to soften our hearts, to understand this passage, to respond with faith and repentance. Lord, use this passage to change us for your glory, Lord. We ask that you would do this for your sake and in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In His name we pray, amen. You can be seated. So very famous death, right? Very very famous person who was put to death in an extraordinary way. What I'm trying to show you here this morning is how this death, again, is very different than all other deaths. There's something that sets it apart. In fact, there's three things in particular that really set Jesus' death apart from all other kind of famous deaths throughout history that we might consider. And the first thing is just very simply this, that Jesus' death was planned, or it was predicted, it was planned. Um, We just got done celebrating Christmas, of, of course, and Uh, in Christmas, we celebrate the the birth of Jesus. We celebrate the beginning of Jesus' earthly life, the beginning of His life uh, in a human nature. We just spent a few weeks actually considering the incarnation. That was our Advent or Christmas sermon series throughout the month of December. We were looking into all the kind of nuances of what it means that the eternal divine Son of God would take on a human nature. Um, But when Jesus was born in a manger... When He took on that human nature, what we can't forget is that Jesus was born with a particular plan in mind. That is, He was born on Christmas with Good Friday in mind. We know what happened on Good Friday, and that is the time when we reflect on Jesus' death. So, Jesus' death was Planned. I, I, by that, I, I don't mean that his enemies were planning his death, although that's true. But what I have in mind here is that there was a, an eternal divine plan that set forth a series of events that would end up in the death of Jesus. And so Jesus was born to die. and that's just something we can't forget when. Uh, even in the middle of the of the cheer and the joy and the gladness of, of Christmas, there is that kind of cloud hanging over Christmas, Jesus Christ born to die. So, uh, let me review again. It's been about a month since we've been in the book of Mark. <clears throat> uh, you might recall that uh, Jesus was uh, put on trial in this kind of uh, kangaroo court before the Sanhedrin, and you might recall that He was convicted of blasphemy, and when that happened, He was then sent be- to uh, Pontius Pilate, for his sentencing, and there was a lot of contradictory evidence brought against Jesus. Pilate was given the opportunity to release Jesus for the sake of an insurrectionist, a robber named Barabbas, but Pontius Pilate's decision was, no, let's uh, let Barabbas go and crucify Jesus. So that's where we, we left off. That was the decision of the Roman court under Pontius Pilate, And so that's where we're picking up here in verse 16. We see now the soldiers come, Roman soldiers, and they escort Jesus uh, away into the governor's headquarters, Pilate's headquarters, and they call together a a whole battalion, could be hundreds of soldiers here. And what we see here in these next few verses is the beginning of this cruel mockery, I mean, just when you think of all that Jesus means to us and, and all that he, that he is in His holiness and righteousness and compassion and, and love and mercy, and just think of people mocking Him the way they did. It's just a startling thing. These spiritually blind people I had no idea what they were doing. So wh- what did they do? They—they they, Verse 17, it says, they uh, clothed them in a purple cloak. Purple uh, represented royalty at that time. They uh, devised this... Crown. Of course, not a real crown. They just get these brown, brittly thorns together and put it together in the shape of a crown and, and put it on his head. And Verse 18, we see that they're saluting him, standing there before him, saluting him, making fun of him, mocking him, calling him king of the Jews. Not because they literally believed it, but just in a way to deride him. Verse 19, we see they... They beat him, striking him on the head. They're spitting on him. We considered this earlier several sermons ago, just the indignity of being spat upon and what that must have been like for the Son of God to endure. And so they mock him, verse 18, calling him king of the Jews, hail, king of the Jews. Again, not because they believed it, but because they wanted to to make fun. And the passage goes on to, to give us a, a number of details about what happened, and what I want you to see here for our first point is that that all of this is planned. This is not some accident. This is not some random thing. It, it seems like everything is spinning out of control here a little bit, doesn't it? But but no. It's not out of control. All of this is planned. In fact, we're going to see these other details that were actually even anticipated in some Old Testament passages where God had in mind specifically what was going to happen. It wasn't just that God planned that one day Jesus would die. He planned all the various details that led up to his death and all the details that were taking place uh, during this particular situation. So let me just show you some examples of this. Um, Psalm 22, for instance. Psalm 22 very famous psalm. It's known as the psalm of the cross. It's known as a psalm that anticipates the suffering of Jesus Christ. And here's a few verses out of Psalm 22. It says this, dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me, they divide My garments among them, and for My clothing they cast lots. Well, again, let's compare Psalm 22 to Mark 15:24. Look down in your Bibles to verse 24. They crucified Him and divided His garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Mark's very clear here. He wants you to see that what is happening in the death of Jesus is what was predicted, anticipated, prophesied in Psalm 22. You know when Psalm 22 was written? About a thousand years before the events of Mark 15. And notice also the reference to piercing my hands and feet. Here's what's so remarkable about that. A thousand years before Jesus was crucified... The psalmist, David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, mentions the piercing of hands and feet, which would have made no sense at all to the Jew reading Psalm 22 because crucifixion wasn't even practiced at that time. Crucifixion was an instrument of execution devised and exercised by the Romans. It didn't come along until many centuries later. And here it is in Psalm 22, predicted plan This is what God had in mind. Even a thousand years earlier, in eternity past, son of God was going to die by crucifixion. Predicted, anticipated in Psalm 22. Well, here's another example. Isaiah 53:12. <clears throat> we'll see how this is captured in Mark 15:27. So you might know about Isaiah 53. Uh, This is a very famous chapter about the suffering servant, again, anticipating the suffering of the Messiah, the Son of God, to come many centuries before. But here's what Isaiah 53 says, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Well, look at verse 27 now, and with him, that is with Jesus, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one one on his left. So here's Jesus on the cross, and there's two other people being crucified. They're robbers to his left and to his right. They're robbers. They're, They're transgressors. And what Isaiah is foreseeing is this time when the suffering servant will be numbered, will be among the transgressors. And there's Jesus, the innocent, blameless Jesus numbered among transgressors, being crucified Among criminals, among robbers. And we even see this added point that he is making intercession for the transgressors. Mark doesn't give us this detail, but you might remember in Luke's account that one of those robbers on the cross looks to Jesus and says, Jesus, would you please remember me when you enter into your kingdom? And Jesus says, Today you're going to be with me in paradise. That's the Messiah on the cross interceding a transgressor pictured anticipated hundreds of years before in Isaiah chapter 53 why cuz God had planned this out this is what he intended to happen and we have one <clears throat> other example psalm 109:25 which we see captured in the 29th verse of mark 15 and here's what psalm 109:25 says i am an object of scorn To my accusers, when they see me, they wag their heads. So looking there at chapter 15, verse 29, those who passed by derided him. They, They scorned him. They mocked him. Wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. We even have this detail of wagging their heads. People passing by, wagging their heads in mockery. And scorn of the Lord Jesus and so in uh, Mark 15 29 we see a fulfillment of what is anticipated here in Psalm 109 25 I mean we, we could we could go, we could go into more detail but you see the point in all of these things that are happened there's there's no surprises God's not surprised Jesus is not surprised Jesus said in John chapter 9 I lay down my life of my own accord according to plan All of this is happening as exactly as God had planned. Now, you might look at some of these and say, yeah, I don't know, you're pushing it a little bit there. I mean, some of those references are a little bit ambiguous. I don't know if I buy a lot of those mark applications of Old Testament um, prophecies. Okay, well, let me just make it as clear as possible, because here's what Peter says. After Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It was planned, no mistake. Friends, as we look at this, we just have to be reacquainted with something that we talk about a lot here, and the Scriptures are very clear about, that all things fall under the sovereign sway of a good and mighty God. And if God planned all the details of this bad thing that happened, the crucifixion of Jesus, crucifixion of Jesus, kind of a good and bad thing, right? Bad in one way, good in another. But if God planned this bad thing, I would suggest that He has planned all other things, good and bad, in all of our lives. And whatever bad thing, difficult thing, hard thing, challenging thing that you're going through right now, it's not an accident. And it's not planned by the devil either. It's planned by a God who loves you. And I know you might think, I can't believe that you're saying that with this thing that's happening in my life. How could a loving God do this? We'll get to that in a moment. But I want to encourage you to take comfort in the fact that things that are happening in your life are not unfolding accidentally or randomly. A guy named Alan Redpath says this, there is nothing, no circumstance, no trouble, no testing that can ever touch me until, first of all, it has gone past God and past Christ right through to me. If it has come that far, it has come with a great purpose, which I may not understand at the moment, but... As I refuse to become panicky, as I lift up my eyes to Him and accept it as coming from the throne of God for some great purpose of blessing to my own heart, no sorrow will ever disturb me, no trial will ever disarm me, no circumstance will cause me to fret. That seems a little unrealistic, actually, because sorrow does disturb us, doesn't it? (laughs) challenges do disturb us but let me encourage you friends to remember what Charles Spurgeon once said that when you face trials the sovereignty of God is a pillow on which you can rest your head god has control and he has something good in store what was the good thing he had in store with the crucifixion of Jesus resurrection resurrection was coming and so the trouble that you're going through it's not over yet And God has it planned. So that's the first thing I want you to see. Jesus' death was planned. Second thing, let's consider this Jesus' death was painful. Again, this is not the most comforting thing to be looking at, I guess, uh, in New Year's, but here it is. It's in the text, and so we we want to take it seriously. Jesus' death was painful. Not suggesting that other deaths. Weren't painful. The death's already mentioned uh, in my introduction. I don't mean that they weren't painful, but there was something, I think, especially and uniquely painful about Jesus' death, given the fact that it was a death by crucifixion. Death by crucifixion. Uh, You might have noticed it was mentioned repeatedly in this text, five times that I count. Uh, Verse 20 says they led him out to crucify him skip down to verse 24, and it also says that they crucified him. Skip to verse 25. It indicates the time in which he was crucified. It says uh, the third hour. That would have been about 9 a.m. in the morning he was crucified. Verse 27 mentions Jesus being crucified along with these other two robbers who were also crucified, the very last verse in our passage, verse 32, those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So five times it's mentioned. There's no mistake. This is how Jesus died, by crucifixion. But one of the peculiar things about this, I think, is that Mark never really goes into any detail about what happens during a crucifixion. And in fact, the other gospel writers don't either. They don't give us the details. They just say he was crucified. That's it. Why? Why is that? Why don't they tell us what happened? I mean, there could be a couple of reasons. One might be because these writers believe that their readers know what happens in crucifixion, and so they don't need to explain it. But uh, another reason could be that you know there are just some things you don't talk about. There are just some things that are so uncomfortable and so troubling, so troubling, so brutal. That that you you know you, you just mention it and you move on. Um, well, I hope you don't think that it is indecent, but I, today I think we're going to talk about it. What what does it mean that Jesus was crucified? What what did this really look like when a, a man or a person was was crucified? Uh, we have some historical detail about this that that helps us know uh, what happened. So, let me tell you a few things. First of all, very often a crucifixion would begin with a beating. So, before they even got to the cross, they've already been beaten. So, verse 19 uh, tells us this, that uh, they were striking Him on the head with a reed. In John's Gospel, chapter 19, it indicates that Pontius Pilate had Jesus flogged. So, a flogging was uh, like a big, long kind of leather whip, and at the end of the whip there would be pieces of metal or bone that was sharp to maximize pain, and this was done before the person was taken to the cross. After the flogging, the person would then have to carry this big, heavy piece of wood to the place of His crucifixion, and let's not forget that Jesus has not slept all night long. It was about 9 a.m., Here he is, completely and totally exhausted, being led out to his crucifixion. It says in verse uh, 22 that they brought him to the place, the place of the crucifixion. It was called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. We think the reason this is called place of the skull is because it was a hill that had no vegetation on it, but it was kind of rounded. And so if you looked at it from a distance, it kind of looked like a skull just look like a skull. So, they call it the place of the skull. And this is where Jesus is led for His crucifixion. One of the purposes of crucifixion, again, this is a Roman instrument of execution, not Jewish, but what the Romans wanted to portray in crucifixion is um, to, to kind of give an example to everybody. Crucifixions were always public. You know, that's why you read of people passing by and just seeing. It Just be something like in the middle of Well, this was outside of town, but it'd be a place where there were people who would be walking by and could notice it. It was totally public. It's like executions today, right, are hidden away in a room, in a prison somewhere. But that's not the way crucifixions were done. They were public, and the reason they were public is because the Romans wanted to communicate that if you resist our authority, this is what's going to happen to you. So it would make sure everybody understood that you don't resist Roman authority. But actually, it was very uncommon for Roman citizens to be crucified because um, it was uh, considered an instrument of execution that was only for the very lowest people of Roman society. So it's typically just slaves and hardened, the most notorious of criminals would be crucified. Well, here's what would happen. Uh, There on uh, Golgotha, the place of the skull, they would have already had uh, the middle post secure in the ground, and once the beaten man arrived at the place of crucifixion, they would have him lay down on the crossbeam, which is called a patibulum, and they would stretch out his arms on the patibulum and sometimes just tie the arms, but very often would nail the arms of the hands to that crossbar, and then they would lift him up. And fasten that crossbar, patibulum, to the middle post, and the feet then would also be nailed to the post. So a nail would just go right through maybe their heel bone into the post. And actually, in 1968, there was an archaeological discovery. This was north of Jerusalem, and uh, they found some skeletal remains of a man they believed. Was crucified and so this is what they found and uh, this apparently here is the the head of the nail and this is a heel bone and there's the nail going right through the bone so we have archaeological evidence that this is something that really happened so once the man was was hung up on the cross Uh, He was just basically left there to die. And so, um, you know, he would want to breathe. It was always difficult for a man hanging on a cross to breathe. The way you would breathe is by kind of pushing up on your legs in order to get a breath. But you can imagine how painful that would be when a nail is through your heel bone. And so, the way to hasten death was to come along and just break the man's legs. Then he couldn't push up and he would suffocate. That's often how people died in crucifixion. The the point of of the Roman form of crucifixion, not only to be a public display, not only to carry out um, a sentence, but, but the point, what they really wanted to do was to prolong the pain. That's what they were interested in. Make sure he suffers as long as possible. And so this is uh, confirmed by our new Bible dictionary. Secular writers of the time shrink from giving detailed accounts of this most cruel and degrading of all forms of punishment. Contemporary writers describe it as a most painful form of death. So wh- why, would, why would Jesus do that? Why would he voluntarily go through that kind of pain? I mean, we could say because he wanted to obey the Father's will, and that's true, and that's part of it. But you know a big reason why? is because he loves you. He did this out of love. You know, if we can measure love by the degree of sacrifice or pain or hardship that we go through for another person, right? I think that's a good way to evaluate love. What has a person done for you? When a person sacrifices for you, when the person goes through pain and difficulty and hardship for you, you know you're loved. Well, there's no hardship that exceeds what Jesus has gone through for you. And so whatever hard thing you're going through right now, whatever difficulty, whatever trial, whatever crisis you are enduring right now in your life, I want to assure you, friends, it's not because God doesn't love you. The evidence of God's love is right here in the crucifixion. It's a troubling thing to behold, but it is also a demonstration of the lengths to which God was willing to go to save you and redeem you and forgive you, and make you His own. And so we see it summed up very sim- simply here, Romans 5, right? God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if I could just add to it, God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us in an accruciatingly Excruciatingly painful death on a cross. That's how much he loves you. So, Jesus' death was painful as a demonstration of his love, but let's consider one last thing Jesus' death had purpose. <clears throat> Jesus' death had purpose. I kind of made reference to this already with these other deaths John Lennon, Abraham Lincoln, JFK, MLK. Um, you, know, you look at those deaths, and it just seems like a waste. Again, you know, it just, sometimes you watch the news and you'll hear about a murder or something and they'll say it was a senseless act of violence. And what they mean by that is it just made no sense. We don't even know why the person did it. There's no clear motive. It just seems to have no reason. And that's what makes it even worse. It's senseless. But Jesus' death was not a senseless act of violence. It, it had a divine purpose. And the purpose of Jesus' death was the redemption of sinners. And so this is kind of implied here. We have to uh, look at this a little carefully here in verses 29 through the rest of the passage here. But, but notice verse 29, the, these passer by, passers-by folks come by and um, they, they say here in, in verse 30, they say, uh, hey, you know, why don't you uh, save yourself, Jesus? Come on down from the cross. Come on down. Uh, that's what just the casual passers-by would say. But uh, verse 31, you, you see that the religious authorities join in, the chief priests and the scribes, and they go by and, and they say, hey, you know, you're, you're the one that says you can save other people. You can't even save yourself. I mean, if you came down off that cross, Jesus, you know, why don't you do that? Come on down and we'll see it and we'll believe. So here, here you have these, these people. It's very common, isn't it? very common phenomenon that people look at God and think that they know better about how God should do things, right? I'm not going to accept you on your terms, God. I'm going to set up a standard for you to obey. And if you do what I ask you to do, then I'll believe. I mean, wow, what arrogance. If God would only do this, if God would only do that, then I'd believe. God, you do what I want. You're at my bidding. And when you do what I want, then I'll believe. That's what these people are doing. Come on down, Jesus. Then I'll believe. But here's what they don't see. They're spiritually blind. They don't get it. But what they're not seeing here is that the only way for Jesus to save anyone is to refuse to save himself. It's the only way. He's got to give himself up. The proof that Jesus was the Son of God would not be Him jumping down off the cross and doing battle and slaying all of His enemies and just complying with what these people wanted. No, the proof that He was the Son of God is not that He'd come down off the cross, but that He would remain there in that agony, staying there faithfully, hanging there until every one of your sins and mine was paid for. And that's what He was willing to do. And that's what he did. He atoned for your sin and for mine. I like how James Edwards says it here. He says, The taunt, that is these people who are making fun of him and mocking him, the taunt assumes that salvation of self is the greatest good. The greatest good, Jesus, would be for you to save yourself. That's, that's the bottom line assumption. The surest vindication of a would-be Messiah is therefore the ability to save himself. Boy, he, we know he's Messiah if he just take care of himself. <laughs> But Jesus has not taken upon Himself the mission of self-help and self-fulfillment. He will be a ransom for others. He's given Himself up for others, not saving Himself so that you and I who trust and believe in Him can be saved. Jesus' death was not a senseless waste. It served this great purpose of covering our sins, turning away the wrath of God, pardoning us of all of our transgressions, wiping us clean in His blood before Him. So how should we respond to this? How should you respond to all that we're hearing here today? First response, very simply, repent and believe. Turn from your sin, turn from your unbelief, turn from your cynicism, your doubts, and believe on the name of Jesus Christ and be saved. That's the first thing. The second thing, though, is to, I would suggest, follow the example that is set for us here in verse 21 of this guy named Simon of Cyrene, a passerby who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, and he was called upon to carry his cross. I think the second thing that we can do in response to this, carry our cross for the sake of Jesus. I think Simon did it again. I mean, it seemed like Simon was forced to do it. We don't really know whether he wanted to do it. (laughs) They told him to do it, and he did it. But you have an opportunity to do it willingly, not because someone is forcing you, but because you want to honor a Savior who has loved you so much that He would go through crucifixion for your salvation. So take up your cross and follow Him. In fact, this is exactly what Jesus told us earlier in Mark chapter 8. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross. Follow me. Every one of us has a different cross. I don't know what it is for you. I don't know. Take up his cross, his personal cross. I got my cross. You get yours. Maybe as you think of 2024, that would be a good resolution. In 2024, I'm going to take up my cross and follow him. Just remember, friends, what Jesus did for you. This is the one who was dishonored so that you could be honored in the heavenly court. This is the one who was stripped naked so that you could be clothed with his righteousness. This is the one who was considered guilty, numbered among the transgressors, so that you could be considered not guilty and innocent. This is the one who suffered death so you and I could live. So take up your cross. Follow him. God, thank you for not only preserving in your word what you have done for us, but for actually doing it to begin with, that you came for us, that you took on a human nature, that you gave up that human nature in the most painful way, and you did it because you love us. Wow. It's astounding. We thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.